Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's declaration after a three-hour meeting with China Xi Jinping that there will be no new Cold War with China, and speak with Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley, and currently is the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square and the Next Generation of China's Leaders, Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a novel of exile. We'll discuss whether Xi Jinping's statement that a statesman, quote, should also think about and know how to get along with other countries in the wider world is a retreat from wolf warrior diplomacy. Then, with Congressman Jamie Raskin warning on CBS's Face the Nation that election deniers will make up a third of the new House and could elect Donald Trump as their speaker, we will speak with Darrell West, the Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of a number of books, including Billionaires, Reflections on the Upper Crust, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era, and most recently, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. Then finally, we'll examine the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange and the 75% loss in the value of Bitcoin from where it was a year ago with Molly White, a software engineer and cryptocurrency critic. In addition to her long-form critical writing about the topic, she maintains the website web3isgoinggreat.com where she catalogues only some of the many disasters happening in cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and other blockchain-based projects. And joining us now is Orville Schell, who is formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley, and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society's Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, and Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century, and most recently, My Old Home, a novel of exile. Welcome to Background Briefing, Orville Schell. Pleasure. Well, thanks for joining us. And what did you make of the three-hour-long meeting today at the G20 in Bali, Indonesia, between Xi Jinping and President Biden? President Biden said, uh, quote, I'm not suggesting this is kumbaya, but I, I do not believe there is a need for concern, as some of you raised a legitimate question of a new Cold War. So that's certainly welcome news, is it not? Yes, it's a bit obscure as to what exactly transpired. Uh, but I think uh, what we may say is that I, I think Xi Jinping now is through his party Congress, but perhaps even more important, uh, he has a number of big challenges at home from a, a crumbling economy to zero COVID policy that's not working out very well to having really alienated so many countries unnecessarily abroad with this wolf warrior diplomacy that he may be rethinking things a bit. And this may have been a moment with Biden, who is someone he, he's known from the past when they were both vice presidents. They made two trips together. They have some history together. So let's wait and see. Uh, one Robin is not springtime, but this is certainly a good sign. 
Well, it is, at least in terms of Ukraine, their statement that they both made, that they reiterated their agreement that a nuclear war should never be fought and can never be won. I know that sounds like a cliché, but (laughs) it's certainly important, isn't it? I mean... Yes, it is very important. And in fact, uh, Xi Jinping also said this to Olaf Scholz uh, uh, from uh, Germany. So we now have him saying this twice, which does put Putin on notice. Uh, It is a good thing. And I think as good as we're going to get for a leader, namely Xi Jinping, who declared to Putin that they were friends without limit uh, to Vladimir Putin. So Xi Jinping said a statesman should think about and know where to lead his country. He should also think about and know how to get along with other countries and the wider world. So that sort of ties into what you were just suggesting. That Do you think he's rethinking wolf warrior diplomacy, that the neighbors are starting to get a little nervous about China's assertiveness? Well, there's no doubt that the neighbors are not only nervous, some of them are downright repulsed by the punitive actions of China and wolf warrior diplomacy. Whether Xi Jinping is really going to do a course correction here is another question. He is not known for stepping down, for admitting that he is wrong. But I do think that we see some subtle gesture here uh, from him, from Xi to Biden, that it's time to lower the temperature. And Biden said that Xi Jinping was clear and I was clear that we will defend American interests and values, promote universal human rights and stand up for the international order and work in lockstep with our allies and partners. We're going to compete vigorously, but I'm not looking for conflict. But on the other hand, the fact that Xi Jinping, he's a Marxist ideologue, he honestly believes that his system is better. He calls it Chinese democracy. I'm not sure what that means. But is he really thinking that his form of government, the last communist government on the planet, basically, is the future? Well, when Xi Jinping speaks of his form of democracy, what he means is the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat which was the Marxist term and the Marxist form of democracy. The truth is that uh, I don't think there's anything that either Biden or Xi can do to mitigate the contradiction between Chinese autocracy under the Chinese Communist Party and a notion of democracy, however imperfectly it is enacted, uh, that is the uh, what animates American politics. And so this remains like a radioactive core at the heart of the relationship, these two utterly different political systems. And we are not going to accept each other. Xi Jinping wants to be accepted, but there is no way he will be accepted if he doesn't act uh, respectably. And he's today done an awful lot to earn disrespect. So this is a problem. And we're not going to have a, tr- a tremendous about face in which the, you know, the, the contradictions between the two countries just suddenly fall away and we are in a new embrace. That's not going to happen. But we might be able to prevent conflict. But is it firmly now ensconced that there's a different direction from Deng Xiaoping's post-Mao period of economic growth and international engagement to more or less turning back the clock to Mao 
with a powerful leader and a powerful communist party? I think Xi Jinping has made it indelibly clear, all the more so in the statements that came out of this last party Congress, that, that the worm has turned. China is not the China of Deng Xiaoping, of opening and reform. It's not even the China of Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao, the subsequent party general secretaries. It's the China of Xi Jinping for a new era. And that is a very different animal where reform is essentially dead, where China has no pretensions of converging into the sort of the existing order. It wants to influence the order and determine the order. And it is not going to accept democratic governance anytime soon. So there still are very deep contradictions dividing us. The question is, can we get enough guardrails up so that at least we don't end up having a military accident lead to conflict or possibly even inhibit China uh, from uh, some sort of a, an invasion or blockade of Taiwan. So it's been said that Chinese communism works in practice, but not in theory. And the printout or the readout from the meeting in Bali at the G20 between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden, uh, the Chinese printout says, the Chinese nation has the proud tradition of standing up for itself. Suppression and containment will only strengthen the will and boost the morale of the Chinese people. So where is the morale of the Chinese people? Because the state is rich and the people are poor, and there's lots of problems, as you indicated earlier, Orville Shell, and you have this kind of work edict, if you will, of 996... You, you know, you start at 9 a.m. and work and end at 9 p.m., six days a week, in the name of building up the state. How much longer can the Chinese people endure these slogans and work so hard for the state as opposed to for themselves? Well, the truth is we don't know the answer to your question, because in a certain sense, we're in one of the, 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 the biggest experiments in the contemporary world, namely, can a new kind of Leninist autocracy hooked up to a massive new array of technological devices, which enable a state and a party to centralize itself, centralize data, surveil everybody, know where everybody is at every moment. Can that endure in ways that maybe old kinds of autocracies could not? We don't know the answer to that. And that is the experiment that we're watching in the Petri dish of China today under Xi Jinping. And is there any inkling that uh, there's resistance? I mean, there were people at a provincial bank demonstrating against the fact that their life savings had been embezzled? Um, There's no doubt that Xi Jinping has generated as much resistance at home as he has abroad with his wolf warrior diplomacy, but it's harder for us to see it. And it also should not refute the idea that there are many people who are proud to see China become wealthy, powerful, and even throw its weight around the world. Uh, that nationalist impulse, which took a century to incubate uh, and now uh, sees China having being very successful in many aspects of life. And many people do not want to see it defeated, even 
as an autocracy under the Chinese Communist Party. So there, of course, like any state, uh, any country, uh, the, the people tend to be divided. Well, there were indications, maybe they were, were misinterpreted, but that there might be some dissent within the top ranks. I mean, at the recent 20th Party Congress, there was that moment where the previous leader, Jintao, seemed to want to grab documents from, snatch them out of Xi Jinping's hands and suddenly gets escorted out. Have we ever figured out what happened there? It's very unclear what happened there, but what we do know beyond a shadow of a doubt is in a world that is always closely scripted uh, by the Chinese Communist Party whenever they have one of these big meetings, uh, this kind of disorder is never uh, uh, planned and is never welcomed because it makes them look uh, fallible. And if there's one thing the party and Xi Jinping does not want to appear is to be fallible and have anything that's un unplanned or unscripted. So it was a hint. But in my experience in China, and I spent many, many decades in and out of China, is that it looks one way from outside. It's a very, it's like a stage set. But when you pull back the curtain, even for an instant, which Westerners get to do only rarely, you see a very different reality. Uh, and the reality is that Xi Jinping has arrested, imprisoned, uh, persecuted, and one could go on, uh, hundreds of thousands of people under the anti-corruption campaign and his just political persecutions. So we know there are people who are not on his team, but that is not to say that everybody is against him nor that there is an incipient populist uh, revolt uh, in the offing. It's very hard to read that in a society where no expressions of dissent are allowed in the media or in the public sphere. We just don't really know how to read it. So just to wrap up then, Orville Shell, from the uh, summit meeting between Xi Jinping and Biden at the G20 uh, meeting in uh, Bali, Indonesia, on the positive side, they did talk about cooperating on climate change. In terms of North Korea, and China has been helpful, I suppose, in the past, Biden said it's difficult to determine whether or not China has the capacity to convince Kim Jong-un to back off from these nuclear tests or these missile tests and a possible forthcoming nuclear test. And Biden went on to say, I'm confident China is not looking for North Korea to engage in further escalatory means. How's that going to play out, do you think? Do you think the Chinese really don't want a nuclear arms race in that neighborhood with Japan and, and South Korea going nuclear? Well, as to your first question on climate change, it is welcome that they, quote, restarted the climate change dialogue between John Kerry and Xi Jinhua, the uh, Chinese climate negotiator. The Chinese traditionally will hold one realm of interaction hostage to another if they don't like what you're doing in the second realm. So climate change had been held hostage to other grievances with the United States. That's good news that, that we're now going to talk again. Where it goes, who knows? It may go nowhere, but we hope it will have some results. As to North Korea, I think China is pretty vexed by North Korea, but 
the last thing they want is to have a unified Korea under the South Korean government move up to the Yalu River. So in a sense, North Korea is a buffer, as impudent and as insurrectionary and insubordinate as it is firing missiles all over the place, China is in no hurry to see it fall. So they're caught in a contradiction uh, between different interests. And the interest that wins out is the interest which likes to see the status quo stay. And thus they support North Korea. So what about then Taiwan, the other thorny issue? Was there any movement on that or any movement to kind of de-escalate that situation? We'll have to see. They spoke for three hours and we really don't have a detailed readout. I'm sure it came up. I just got back from Taiwan. It's a very, very fraught place. And all the more so because Taiwan makes 92% of all of the world's semiconductors, which is like water in the world. It's what the world runs on. And uh, this means that Taiwan is of immense importance, not just as a, a thriving democracy off the coast of China, but as a manufacturer of a thing that all countries everywhere depend on. Um, I don't know what they discussed in that regard, but I am sure Biden uh, sought some sorts of reassurances that that, that uh, she would commit to a peaceful resolution, which they've steadfastly refused to do. They have not renounced the possible use of force to reunify the motherland. And that is a source of immense contention between the U.S. and China. But since you were just in Taiwan, you mentioned that it's fraught. Could you explain further? I mean, are the Taiwanese people quite concerned about the possibility of a Chinese military invasion. I mean, we we have one going on in Ukraine, and that certainly has shaken up the world and made it look as if we don't live in such a stable world and that the UN's founded on the notion of countries not invading their neighbors, although China will always argue that uh, Taiwan is not so much a neighbor, it's a part of China. Well... Two things have gotten the attention of the Taiwan people, as well as the government in Taiwan. The first is the war in Ukraine. It is a reminder that big powers sometimes do invade uh, lesser lands that they view as being somehow a part of the motherland or fatherland. The second thing that's gotten people's attention in Taiwan was Nancy Pelosi's visit. In a certain sense, you can say it was a provocation to China. But in actuality, having been there after Pelosi's visit, I've also come to appreciate it as a real wake-up call. Because what people in Taiwan and elsewhere around the world saw through these six fi uh, live fire zones that um, China launched all around the island of Taiwan, shooting missiles over the island and into the waters of Japan, was that um, this is what they have in mind. And this did get the attention of the people on Taiwan, recognizing that they better get themselves ready because the best way to maintain peace is to deter China. And the best way to deter China is to make Taiwan as militarily, economically, and politically indigestible as possible. So they aren't tempted to do what Putin did in the Ukraine, rush recklessly in and get stuck in a quagmire for months after months after months and degrading its own military without victory. 
So the Taiwanese are determined to build up their military, and is that going to happen, or is it happening? It is. They're trying to do that. Yes, there's a, there is a real course correction to create what they call a porcupine strategy, which means they won't depend on Abrams tanks and F-16s so much as diversified, decentralized, sort of guerrilla unit-like uh, forms of resistance that can be dispersed. You know, a small number of, of uh, a, a large number of small things spread out around the island that I think would give China real pause about launching any kind of amphibious landing. But having said that, I have to say that all, we all should be aware that the chance of an amphibious invasion is much less likely than something like a blockade or a declaration that there's one custom zone and all ships that go to Taiwan have to go through Chinese customs. And there goes the end of our ability to get weapons into Taiwan. And there goes the end of Taiwan as a as a maritime uh, country that can function because no insurance company would insure merchant marine. So China has a lot of cards up its sleeves uh, that it can play, which are short of outright invasion. Well, Orville Chow, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Orville Schell, who was formerly the Dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley and is currently the Arthur Ross Director of the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. His books include Mandate of Heaven, The Legacy of Tiananmen Square, and The Next Generation of China's Leaders, and Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century. And his most recent book is My Old Home, A Novel of Exile. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into Jamie Raskin's warning on CBS's Face the Nation that election deniers will make up a third of the new House and could elect Donald Trump as their speaker. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Daryl West, the Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and the author of a number of books, including Billionaires, Reflections on the Upper Crust, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era, and most recently, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daryl West. Thank you, Ian. It's great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Daryl. And I feel like it's a curse that we have to talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> How does it strike you? I mean, I find it just so extraordinary that a man who led a coup against the American government, against, what, 242 years of American democracy, 
instead of being ostracized by the Republican Party, he's been rewarded. He controls the party. And on the Sunday talk shows, uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin was on the CBS Face the Nation, and he pointed out there's so many election deniers in the that just got elected to the uh, Republican House slim majority, which we assume will be probably less than five. They might even elect Donald Trump, or at least put him forward as a speaker. So talk about hyperpartisanship. This is not going away, is it? Uh, polarization is not going away anytime soon. Even though the election results were positive for uh, Democrats, uh, there still are a number of extremists who will be uh, who are in Congress and will represent uh, people outside of uh, Congress. Uh, I'm certainly uh, concerned about you know what the situation is going forward. And if anything, you know, if Republicans do end up in uh, control of the House, and if the margin is only four, five, or six seats it's actually going to empower the extremists within the House caucus because for Republicans to pass anything, they're going to need a, a near complete vote. Uh, and that means any three, four or five individuals who jump off the reservation uh, could torpedo legislation. And that gives them great leverage in negotiating with whoever the speaker turns out to be. But conversely, doesn't it give the Democrats some leverage, that there's probably a handful of reasonable Republicans that could work with the Democrats? That is very possible. Uh, and we've actually seen situations in other places, uh, namely at the state level, where sometimes the so-called minority party can draw on a few votes from the so-called majority party and basically uh, end up controlling the chamber in that way. So there may be some issues where uh, Democrats can unite with the few Republicans uh, and actually dictate legislation. So that would certainly be a very ironic outcome of this House election. So that might apply, for example, to efforts to cut off aid to Ukraine, do you think? I don't think they're going to be serious efforts to uh, cut off aid to Ukraine because there is a bipartisan majority there. But I think it's going to be in favor of keeping uh, foreign aid to Ukraine. Uh, but there could be other uh, issues where the two parties are able to uh, get together. So it, it will certainly be uh, new terrain in the sense that the House has not been this closely divided in decades. So back to the Freedom Caucus in the House. According to CBS News, there are at least 155 Republican election deniers of one House seats, and there are nine election deniers, apparently, in the Republican Senate. Are those figures that you're okay with, uh, Darrell? I haven't counted them, uh, but it sounds about right. And, and that is a frightening number because that's, you know, if, if those numbers are accurate, that's a third of the overall House of Representatives and 10% of the uh, Senate. So, uh, you know, even though they are clear minorities uh, in the House, uh, that is a very big number in a closely divided uh, chamber. They're going to exercise power. Uh, they're going to be on crucial committees. Uh, they will probably uh, end up helping to hold hearings, investigating the Biden administration. So they will certainly have a platform and be a noisy presence in a lot of the discussions going forward. So let's talk about what Jamie Raskin raised, the possibility 
of Donald Trump becoming the House Speaker, at least getting nominated. When do they do their vote, the Republican caucus? The uh, the Republican caucus has its uh, vote uh, this week, uh, but the Speaker vote actually is the full House of Representatives, and I believe that vote is in early January. So there could be a six-week period where Kevin McCarthy has won the support of Republicans uh, by and large, but with you know some likely defections. And that will mean he can he may or may not be guaranteed uh, the actual support in the full chamber. It really depends on how many people within the, the Republican Party vote against him because he only needs majority support within the party, but in the House, he needs majority support of the entire chamber. And if he only has, let's say, a five-seat margin, and there are seven Republicans willing to vote against him, he is not going to get the majority of the full House. So Trump is supposed to announce tomorrow, Tuesday, that he's running for president. So I don't see how you can be <laughs> run for president and be Speaker of the House. Is that possible? I do not believe Donald Trump is interested in being a Speaker of the House. Uh, he doesn't want that kind of responsibility that would tie him down to Washington, uh, D.C. I mean, he needs to be out there among the rest of the uh, country, kind of talking to his uh, base, which he absolutely uh, loves uh, to do. So I'm not particularly worried about that scenario. Well, it's, it's being Speaker of the House, is, you actually have to work, don't you? I mean, <laughs> Trump's idea of work is to go speak at rallies where he rambles on for like two hours. That's how he gets his jollies, isn't it? I mean... Oh, he yes, he loves speaking at large rallies, uh, kind of uh, in front of adoring uh, fans. The last kind of job that he would ever want would be a legislative uh, job of any sort. So I guess Jamie Raskin was just, what, being mischievous by floating this idea on the Sunday CBS Face the Nation? I mean, he probably uh, wants to gin up the debate uh, in, in the sense of kind of putting Trump out there as an influential individual because he's been a great target for Democrats. Uh, obviously, all the toxicity associated with Trump has helped to turn out the Democratic base in this midterm election. And Democrats want to continue that through the Georgia special election in December and for the next two years leading up uh, through the presidential campaign. So, uh, Darrell West, what's happening on the Republican side with a, some kind of insurrection going on in terms of whether or not they'll vote Mitch McConnell back as a minority leader? It's uh, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and Rick Scott as well. But Rick Scott is the guy that led the Republican Senate effort, which obviously failed. So I don't know what kind of clout he has. Apart from the fact that he's a mega felon, I think he he had to make the biggest settlement in, in American history, I think, of $1.7 billion for Medicare fraud when he ran a big health care company in Florida. I don't think Senator Scott has a lot of credibility in terms of the internal operations of the Senate, like especially after the midterm performance where Republicans were expecting to regain majority control of the Senate. They obviously failed in that regard. Uh, Scott is part of that failure in the sense of he helped to back some losing uh, candidates. 
he put the issue of possible curtailments in spending on Social Security and Medicare on the agenda, which then allowed Democrats to beat him up on uh, that uh, issue. So I think all those individuals want to do is kind of delay the election and have a discussion about the future of the party and try and gain some leverage uh, there. But Mitch McConnell is very expert at reading the Republican caucus in the Senate. And I will be surprised if he is not the leader of uh, that caucus after all the smoke clears. So what do you make then of efforts by Rupert Murdoch, the kingmaker, to try and uh, distance the Republicans, or at least the Fox viewers from Trump, with, you know, Trumpy Dumpty on the New York Post, Trumpy Dumpty, who couldn't build a wall, had a great fall, and leaving others to put the party's pieces back together. It seems to be a, a campaign now, at least in terms of the Murdoch press, to boost Ron DeSantis and beat down Trump's numbers. Are they likely to go up, do you think, Trump's numbers uh, after Tuesday? What kind of a bounce is he going to get tomorrow, do you think? I mean, this is a major power move on the part of Murdoch, and because he controls Fox News, uh, you know, uh, Republicans will uh, take that as uh, seriously. I'd be surprised if Trump gets any kind of bounce out of his announcement uh, just because, you know, everybody's views on Trump, I think, are pretty well established at this point. Like the people who love him are still going to love him. The people who hate him are still going to hate him. The undecided vote on Trump is negligible. I, I don't think there are very many people who haven't uh, made up their mind on him. So just, uh, Daryl West, going back to your recent book, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era, the problem is, of course, that the Trump Era has not gone away. And he is the greatest instrument of division. I mean, he's the best gift that Vladimir Putin ever had because his strategy is to divide America and turn us against each other. And Trump seems to oblige to an extraordinary degree. But are we looking at even more hyperconflict in the coming two years? If you've got Trump out there on the stump, he's going to be trashing his rival uh, DeSantis, and you've got the Freedom Caucus controlling one third of the House, and they're going to be incredibly noisy, and it's not even clear that McCarthy's going to be able to uh, either be the Speaker or, or, as a Speaker, being able to control them. We we mentioned the the insurrection in the in the Senate as well, even even though it's not as powerful as the one inside the House. All of those together seem to me to indicate even more polarization, partisanship, and chaos, witch hunts and show trials for the next two years. I think that is likely to be the case. Uh, there's going to be conflict between the parties, but also within the parties, but especially on the Republican side, because, you know, Trump is not going away. Uh, he wants to run for uh, president. And I fully expect him uh, to announce that. He is just going to continue to be a divisive force within the party because there's so many establishment people who just want him to go away so they can move on to the next generation of uh, leaders. But he's not going to do that. He's a partisan uh, force between the parties in the sense that Democrats, by and large, hate him. Uh, but a lot of Democrats actually view him as seriously damaged right now and actually look forward to the prospect of continuing to be able to run against uh, Trump. They especially like the fact that if he announces uh, this week, you know, it's 
you know, kind of right before the Georgia special election, that will allow the party uh, and Senator Warnick to continue to run against uh, Trump. And Democrats see that as an advantage for themselves. And you mentioned a younger generation of Republicans. Doesn't the same thing apply to the Democrats? I mean, without being unkind, uh, it seems to be a kind of, uh, you know, an old age home. You've got Pelosi in her 80s and Biden in his 80s, etc. And Clyburn and a number of the senior figures, they seem to be all pretty elderly, the face of the Democratic Party. And it's hard to know whether Biden is going to run again. He said he's going to think about it over the break between Christmas and the New Year, maybe make an announcement early in 2023. But is that a fair observation that the Democratic Party needs a little rejuvenation? There definitely needs to be a younger generation that moves up on the Democratic side. I mean, Biden is old. Uh, a lot of the House leadership uh, is uh, up in age as well. And Democrats actually have a pretty good bench right now, both in terms of younger people within uh, Congress, but also now in governors around the country, attorney generals, secretary of states in uh, key uh, states. So they have a much better bench now than they did before the midterm elections. And what kind of a bench would they have, do you think, for the presidency in 2024 if Biden were to decide not to run again? I would actually be surprised if Biden didn't run in 2024 just because he is already taking the midterm elections as vindication of both what he has done as president as well as his agenda for moving forward. You know, there seems to be a bounce in his step uh, over uh, the last week. He's, you know, been uh, meeting with uh, foreign uh, leaders uh, this week uh, and seems very confident in terms of American foreign policy, as well as some of the achievements he's already had on the domestic front. So I think when uh, Biden thinks about this over the holidays, his conclusion is going to be that he will be running for president. But you have to ask yourself, can America do better? I mean, a while back, there were concerns that we're going to have political competitions in this country between the Bushes and the Clintons. And now there's a possibility of another Biden-Trump race. I mean, that just seems old news. Yeah, there certainly are a lot of people who are not going to be happy uh, with that uh, choice. But I suspect Republicans are going to be less happy if Trump becomes the GOP nominee, as opposed to Democrats being unhappy with uh, Biden. Uh, especially if Biden is able to position himself as the bulwark against authoritarianism and, you know, all the things that Trump uh, represents. You know, Trump has a way of unifying the Democratic Party uh, in ways that actually are quite beneficial for Democrats. But not for the nation, right? I mean, well, we certainly conflict, need new ideas, uh, and, and I certainly... Uh, you know, hope there is a generational uh, shift uh, at some point. And I think it, the key in Congress is really Pelosi and what she decides to do. And when will we know about that? Just well, the closing. Democrat leadership vote is scheduled for near the end of November. And uh, Speaker Pelosi over the weekend said she would make her decision public before that election. So presumably sometime in the next couple of weeks, we will know uh, what her intentions are. Well, Daryl West, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ian.
And again, I've been speaking with Daryl West, who's the Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and the author of a number of books, including Billionaires, Reflections on the Upper Crust, Divided Politics, Divided Nation, Hyperconflict in the Trump Era, and most recently, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange and the 75% loss in the value of Bitcoin from where it was a year ago. A verified freestyle, lyrics of fury. My third eye make me shine like jury. You're just a renter, rapping your rhymes are minimate. I'll be here when it fade. I watch it flip like a renegade. I can't wait to break and eliminate on every trade of a snake, so stay awake and follow and follow because the tempo's a trail. The stage is a cage, the mic is a third rail. I'm Rock Kim. You never give me your money. You only give me your funny Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Molly White, a software engineer and cryptocurrency critic. In addition to her long-form critical writing about the topic, she maintains the website web3isgoinggreat.com, where she catalogues only some of the many disasters happening in cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and other blockchain-based projects. Welcome to Background Briefing, Molly White. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And you've been proven right. And I've always pondered why in God's name would anybody want to spend real money to buy fake money. But it looks like this whole cryptocurrency thing is unraveling with the downfall of FTX, which is one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges. And now Bitcoin, which is the biggest cryptocurrency, has fallen by more than 75% from where it was this time a year ago. So apparently there's worse to come, is there not, Molly? I think there is. Um, you know, any time a institution that's so central to cryptocurrency fails, like with FTX, I think, you know, there's the initial hit, but then there's cascading effects as other institutions that were exposed to FTX also begin to fail We saw kind of a smaller scale version of this earlier this year when Three Arrows Capital um, became insolvent and a number of uh, failures across the industry were kicked off as a result of that. So I think we sort of know what to expect just on a larger scale. So what do you know about the 662 million that mysteriously disappeared from FTX before it collapsed? Well, I don't think I know much more than anyone else who is just looking at it as an outsider. I think there's kind of a lot of questions there, but it looks like at least some of it was taken uh, improperly as, you know, a, either an exploit or uh, someone, an insider, more likely uh, made off with some of the cash that was under the control of FTX. Um, it looks like maybe some of it was also uh, 
withdrawn by FTX as they moved to try to secure some of the funds in their control uh, in more you know secure locations, cold storage, that kind of thing. But as of yet, there hasn't been much transparency around how much was stolen, um, how much was stolen but maybe recovered. It, it sounds like there may be some uh, clue as to the identity of the person who has ex- exfiltrated some of the funds. Um, and then how much was taken, you know, as a move by FTX to secure their own assets. So the the founder um, of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, the 30-year-old um, cryptocurrency titan, um, he apparently was just watched billions slip through his fingers. He said he had a fortune, I don't know how many billions it was, but it evaporated in an extraordinary downfall. Uh, is he really wiped out? I mean, he, he, he apparently made a lot of donations to Democrats in this last cycle. Um, and uh, I think, where does he live? In the Virgin Islands or somewhere? He's offshore. Bahamas. Yeah. Bahamas. Yeah. So he, he's offshore from regulators? Uh, well, from U.S. regulators, at least. I know the Bahamian, Bahamian regulators are also looking into the possibility of criminal activity versus, and also just the Securities Commission is investigating what was happening at FTX. So I don't think he's fully immune, but he is somewhat out of reach at the moment. Um, yeah, I mean, his fortune, I think, largely was on paper to begin with. You know, he was uh, a billionaire in some senses, but much of that fortune was, you know, illiquid cryptocurrency holdings. Uh, but I think it's hard to argue that he is now standing on a much smaller uh, pile of assets than he was a couple of weeks ago. He was, you know, one of the wealthiest people in the world a couple of weeks ago, and now he has, you know, seen his fortune sort of trickle away. Um but, you know, like most people, I think in these circumstances, they tend to land on their feet. The people who really have trouble putting food on the table are not usually the founders of the cryptocurrency exchanges. It's the people who trusted them with their assets. Well, I heard that the Canadian Teachers Pension Fund lost $92 million. Have you heard stories like that? Yes, I, I did hear that they were uh, exposed to FTX. I do think it was a very small portion of their overall investments. You know, they had uh, allocated some of their assets to risky investments, and FTX was one of them. So I don't think they will necessarily be wiped out by the collapse. But it is pretty shocking to me that pension funds and other, you know, controllers of real money uh, are putting their assets into projects like FTX. So what explains that? I mean, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, Molly, I've always been puzzled as to why people would spend real money on fake money. Well, I think that there was the opportunity for huge returns, you know, despite the uh, somewhat questionable business models, people did make a lot of money by putting funds either into crypto directly or investing in companies that were involved in the cryptocurrency space. And so I think that pension funds, you know, saw people getting wealthy and decided that they should, you know, expose themselves to that kind of risk as well on the off chance that it could make a huge return. And, you know, sometimes it has and sometimes it really does not. I mean, they are probably writing that investment off to zero as we speak. 
And what do you know of the small investors, the people you said have to put food on the table? How badly hit have they been? Is there a sort of ratio between the big speculators and the small speculators? I don't think so. Nothing that I know of, but I think it will be a sort of similar circumstance as people who had money in Celsius or Voyager, which are two crypto platforms that are currently undergoing bankruptcy proceedings in the U.S., where you know, people had assets stored in those companies that they expected to be able to have access to whenever they needed it. And now they are waiting for bankruptcy proceedings, which can be extremely protracted, to determine how much, if at all, uh, they get access to those funds and when. So, you know, people use these uh, exchanges and other platforms as, you know, a bank account almost or an investment uh, account and expected to be able to access their funds whenever they wanted to. And now they may never get most of their funds back. And when they do, you know, it may be a long time before they get any of it back. And when they do, it may well be at a pretty severe haircut. I've seen estimates of between, you know, five and 25 cents on the dollar. But again, you know, that's just people uh, sort of guessing. I don't think we'll know until bankruptcy proceedings play out a little bit more. So did the Fed changing its interest rates, um, apparently it did affect the crypto market. But, I mean, it was obviously, if not fraudulent in its uh, essence. What are the factors that brought it down so quickly? Not that it's completely down, but... JP Morgan analysts are now predicting that there'll be another 25% drop in Bitcoin in the coming weeks. Yeah, there were a number of factors that all sort of uh, contributed to declining crypto prices over the year at this point. It's been a pretty steady decline. Um, there were some pretty high profile blow ups towards the beginning of the year in the spring uh, with the failure of the Terra Luna ecosystem and then other failures, including Three Arrows Capital, Celsius, and projects like that, which definitely led to destabilization, I think, in the faith in cryptocurrency. You know, a lot of people saw those really high-profile failures and decided, I don't want anything to do with this, I'm going to take my money out, uh, and they sold off. But I think also, you know, the cryptocurrency industry and cryptocurrency prices are a lot more tied to traditional financial markets than they like to claim. Uh, a lot of crypto advocates will claim that cryptocurrency is a good uh, store of value if you're not, you know, someone who wants to be exposed to whatever's happening in traditional financial markets. Uh, you know, it's a good hedge against inflation. But I think we've seen in reality, none of that has really been true. Um, cryptocurrency prices have tracked the U.S. stock market fairly closely and have been suffering negative impact from inflation changes, uh, just like traditional financial markets. And so uh, that has absolutely contributed to the overall downturn in crypto. And then obviously this most recent failure of a huge crypto exchange has clearly shaken the faith in cryptocurrency as a whole. We've seen it not only in cryptocurrencies that are closely tied to FTX, like Solana, but also in the broader cryptocurrency markets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So there was a lot of promotion, obviously. I mean, some celebrities promoted crypto. Larry David, I think, promoted it, didn't he? And 
yeah. the actor Matt Damon, what the future belongs to the bold or something. Yeah, um, fortune favors the brave. <laughs> fortune favors the brave, right? Well, they're not feeling particularly brave at the moment as they look at their empty balance sheet. Is there any culpability there? I mean, was this, you know, snake oil? I think there is culpability. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, people really need to consider what they're advertising, even celebrities. And, you know, I think that there should have been more attention paid by advertising regulators to the uh, types of sales pitches that were being made in these advertisements. I mean, the FTX advertisement at the Super Bowl, Super Bowl with Larry David that you just mentioned, they advertised FTX as a safe place to store your cryptocurrency, which clearly is not actually what has played out. People are now finding themselves without access to that same cryptocurrency, and it certainly was not a safe place. Um, and so I think, you know, those promises really deserve some scrutiny, as do the the advertisements that are happening elsewhere. I mean, there have been serious issues with social media influencers promoting cryptocurrencies without proper disclosure, uh, various celebrities even getting in on social media campaigns. We recently saw an SEC enforcement action against Kim Kardashian for promoting, uh, for improper disclosure around her promotions of a cryptocurrency token. But that is only one in a long string of similar advertisements by other celebrities that have not received much scrutiny to date. Well, sports stadiums have been named after cryptocurrency companies, right? Yeah, I mean, the FTX Arena in uh, Miami, I think, will probably have to be, you know, undergo a rebrand. It'll probably sell to another uh, firm. And there are several others. There's the Crypto.com Arena. Um, and then there are various sports teams who have been uh, paid to advertise by various cryptocurrency projects, some of which have already failed. I mean, there was a deal between Terra Luna and the Washington Nationals that I think was supposed to go for five years, but six months into the deal, Terra Luna collapsed. And so now, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do there also. Right. I think there's a big stadium here in LA. Yeah. In downtown Los Angeles, the Staples Center is, is now known as the Crypto.com Arena. So, <laughs> I mean, again, it's extraordinary it got this far. I mean, one of the many criticisms of crypto is comes from a different quarter, which is global warming, is, is the immense amount of electricity that's used. So is that a blessing in disguise, that if it all goes away, at least that aspect of it, the enormous waste of electricity, will be a benefit? Yeah, I suppose that's possible. You know, if, if people were to completely lose interest in Bitcoin, it could potentially decrease the electricity usage, although I think that Despite the price dips, we have not actually seen a meaningful reduction in how much electricity is being used. But Bitcoin is an absolutely horrifying uh, environmental uh, concern. You know, there is just countries worth of electricity being used to power uh, cryptocurrency mining on the Bitcoin blockchain. And, you know, I think it remains to be seen what would actually happen to something like Bitcoin uh, in sort of a protracted downturn. But so far, there has not been much of a improvement in that department. Well, just in closing then, uh, Molly White, what are the lessons that we take away from this scam, if that's the right word? <laughs> 
Um, I mean, I think that, you know, we, a lot of people have been ringing the alarm for a long time that these are not uh, assets that should reasonably be considered investments. And so treating them like investments means that there is this enormous risk that you're taking on. And, you know, it's not only the risk that Bitcoin prices might fall or the, the price of whichever asset a person chooses, but also that these poorly regulated and sometimes very shady uh, cryptocurrency platforms may just run off with your money or be doing things behind the scenes that you don't realize, as in the case with FTX, where they were uh, loaning out customer funds, which is something that you know you would expect to never see in a regulated financial market, but was happening uh, quite egregiously in the cryptocurrency markets. So I think the lesson here really is that the amount of risk with cryptocurrencies can't be overstated. And, uh, you know, this is sort of what happens when uh, people begin to be sold cryptocurrencies as the future, as, you know, a way to make these massive returns. And as though there are, you know, safe and trustworthy ways to put money into the cryptocurrency ecosystem, we see these enormous failures that will hurt a lot of people. Well, Molly White, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Molly White, who's a software engineer and a cryptocurrency critic. In addition to her long-form critical writing about the topic, she maintains the website web3isgoinggreat.com, where she catalogues only some of the many disasters happening in cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, NFTs, and other blockchain-based projects. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates, as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. One more light goes out in the